pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is the sixth beatitude. And no doubt, as probably with all of them really, but nevertheless this one seems to me a very challenging one. After all, apart from our great omniscient, that is our great all-knowing God, who knows the state of our hearts better than we ourselves? It's a question, isn't it? Who knows you the best? Well, obviously God knows you and God knows me better than anyone. He knows the secret dwellings of your mind, the secret lusts of the heart, those things that we dwell upon that we ought not to dwell upon. And also knows those good things with which we think of. But we ourselves know ourselves better than anyone else apart from God. Jeremiah the prophet, in chapter 17 of his uh, writings, verse 9, says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Above all things. How many people have, have you heard say, you know, they're speaking of somebody. You may have said it yourself, I think I've said it myself. You know, this, this person we're talking about, he's got, a, he's got a really lovely heart. He's got a good heart. But when you read things like this, you think, no... Not really. Not truly. I know what's trying to be said. We're trying to say this person's a nice person. But the reality is, friends, when we look at Scripture, nobody, not one of us, has a good heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful. That means it deceives us into thinking that we're actually good. They were actually pure. They were actually something other than we actually are. The, the Bible says... It's deceitful, and it says it's deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. And then he says this, who can know it? So even though you know your heart to the level that you do better than any other human being, you will never know the depth of the depravity and the darkness of your own heart like God knows it. And he is the one that reveals it to us, and I want him to, because I want to see just what it is that he has saved me from. The wickedness and the depth of depravity of my own dark heart. But how many of us ponder on such things? To really believe and look upon ourselves. And I'm not just talking about just wicked thoughts every now and again. The reality is that the very core of us as human beings is desperately wicked. And we cannot know it. As God knows it. We don't realise just how depraved we are. <coughs> Every single part of us. Mind, soul, body, spirit, whatever you want to call it. Is wicked. Is steeped in sin. It doesn't mean to say that we are as bad as we could possibly be. For there are good people in the sense of what humanity would term good in this room. But Christ, the Father, the Holy Spirit, would never turn what we are as good. Remember, the man that came to me says, Good teacher, tell me, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? Well, what did he say to him? Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. Now, I believe that Jesus was identifying himself there as being God. 
because he is absolutely good. But he's, there again he's saying, only God is good. There is not one good person in this room, in this sense. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And it is desperately wicked. Above all things, who can know it? And Jesus also says in Matthew 15, he says, For out of the heart, verse 19, it is if you're looking it up. Matthew 15, verse 19, he says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Out of the heart, all these things that we maybe think about or act upon, they come from within the heart of man. That's where they come from. When scripture speaks of the heart like this, what are we to make of it? What are we to make of when scripture speaks of the heart? Thea helps us to understand the meaning and it is that of the soul. The heart is the soul or the mind. As it is the fountain and the seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavours. It is of the will and the character of a person. So when the Bible speaks of the heart, we need to look deeper into what it means. It's not this organ that's pumping blood in our chest here. It's the very seat of our will, of our emotions, of our purposes, the affections that we have. That's what's inclusive when it means, when it speaks of the heart. All of our passions, all of our desires, the very appetites that we have. That is what it means when it says the heart. By nature, we are sons of Adam, fallen in said nature, unrighteous. And our hearts, along with all those things listed above, they're tainted and darkened by corruption. Every one of us, there's no escaping the fact. The most loveliest, most genuine, most godly person in this room, in their own nature, in their own heart, in the seats of the mind and the will of the emotions, are darkened and corrupt in and of themselves. As I've said, not one part of us remains untouched from the decay and the rot of sin. To be pure in heart is totally alien to us in our natural condition. We have got no idea what it is to be pure in heart in and of ourselves. We don't know how it is to be pure in our mind, in our actions or our behaviour. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, verses 27, 28. Woe to you, scribes, 
scribes and Pharisees, that's who he's speaking to, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Remember that these people were seen to be the religious leaders of the day, respected by many people, actually, as he calls them, hypocrites. They were very desirous of the respect uh, and the pomp and the accolades of men. But here he speaks to them and he says, you look the part. You look like how you speak. But inside you are full of dead men's bones. You're all white on the outside, like those tombs. He, 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 he kind of puts them against these whitened sepulchres. These tombs that have been painted to look so nice, so pure, so clean. But in reality, inside of that pureness... All there is is corruption, rot and bones. This is what he says to those Pharisees. We can reform the way that we behave. We can do that ourselves. We can even appear outwardly pious. And yet within we can be full of unrighteousness. So this beatitude has, has to mean more than merely a reformation of conduct. There are people in this world who reform themselves from being alcoholics or people who smoke or have lived a life of profligacy and they decide one day, this, this, this life, I don't want to live this life anymore. And they stop and they, with their own personal drive, they become a different person. And yet, they're just the same inside. It is possible to reform your character to become a better person, humanly speaking, and yet still be somebody who is full of unrighteousness. And it's even, as we see with these scribes and Pharisees, possible to appear pious and righteous and, and wonderfully knowledgeable in the Scriptures, to be and appear to be of a Christian uh, disposition. <coughs> and yet actually... We can be unrighteous. What, 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 who are those tares within the harvest of the wheat? The tares are false. They're false Christians, false believers who look the part, who play the part, who act the part. And the only way that we can tell the difference between wheat and tares is what? Well, there isn't a way, not until the harvest comes. The only way you can tell a wheat from tare is when it bears its fruit. Because they look exactly alike until the time comes for the head to burst forth. And then you can tell the difference. Remember in that uh, parable, Jesus said, didn't he? He says that he waits for the sickle to the end of time so that the righteous are not plucked up with the unrighteous. Because they can look so like the real thing and yet actually are impure and just full of rot. Blessed are the pure in heart. If all that we have learned so far be true, which it is, we can only come to the conclusion that being pure in heart, once again, 
is something that does not come naturally to us. We are not pure in heart by nature. We are born in trespasses and sin. We do not have a clue what it is to be pure in heart in our own nature. The only thing we know is corruption and decay. This is something only God can give. It's a sole work of God alone within a person. It is not within our power to make our hearts clean. Absolutely impossible. How often have we tried in our own lives with certain things to say, no, I'm not going to let my mind wander to that. I'm not going to act in that way. I'm not going to speak that way. And before you know it, it's almost like it's rolled out off your tongue or your mind before you've even been able to shut the door. It's impossible to reform ourselves so much that we become pure in heart. We don't have the power. We see every one of these beatitudes are principles at work within the true believer. And I think it's also right to say that all of these principles so far are worked out progressively throughout the life of a Christian. Does one reach a place of poorness of spirit, of mourning, a place of meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Do we reach a place of being merciful, of being pure in heart in this life to such a level that we can say that we've made it to the top? Is that possible? Can we become so pure in heart here that there is no more to gain, no more to glean from? It's, it's not possible. Because we are still full of sin. Because in this life, friends, as you all, I hope, know, we war and we battle against the flesh. Every day. Every second of the day we live, as a believer in Christ, that is, if we're not believers, then we won't war against the flesh, because to us the flesh is flesh, it's animalistic, it's just what we are, it's just instinct. What's sin? It's not sin, it's just the way we are, it's just the way we're made up. But to Christians who know the difference, it's sin, we know what sin is. And this works progressively, and we war against our flesh and we put to death the lusts of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we understand that until we reach glory, we will never be so pure in heart as to be wholly free from sin. We won't reach that while we're here. So if you have that illusion, then kind of throw it out. Because there's not going to be a time while you live in this body, with this mind, with this heart, in this world, in this flesh, that we're going to be absolutely pure in heart. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen until we reach glory. What does Jesus mean here then? In its truest sense, being pure in heart can only be firstly said or applied to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
He is absolutely pure in heart. Absolutely. It's firstly and foremostly as the epitome of purity is Christ himself. It can also be said of the angels who God created to serve him in purity. And it can also be said then of those saints who have already passed into glory. That they are now as he is. When we see him, we shall be like him. And they too will be living in a pureness of heart which we do not know. Being pure in heart is not so much something we become, but something which God does in us. He makes us pure in heart, as it were. To be pure denotes cleanness. When we think of water, we, you know, somebody comes to you and says, I've got a glass of water here, it's 99% pure, 1% sewage. Are you going to drink it? Because you're going to think to yourself, 99% high, but this is not, still not pure, is it? Still not clean. Just that 1%, just that little bit of sewage in our water, you're going to think, I'll pass over that, I'll buy a bottle. So that's what it kind of denotes. It denotes cleanness, purity. In 1 John 1 7, it says this If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we are fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us. From all sin. It has to come from outside of us. And it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which we can be cleansed. Washed. Pure. Clean. From all of our sin. Hebrews 9.22 And according to the law. Almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood. There is no remission. It is impossible for your sins to be forgiven. To the sins to be forgiven, it is impossible without blood being shed. And he says, speaking about the tabernacle of how it was all sprinkled, if you remember, with the blood of the, the sheep and the goats and the heifers. Whatever it was they sacrificed, they, they took the hyssop and they sprinkled it. Because the blood uh, was signifying this future sacrifice of Christ himself. Whose blood is absolutely pure. These, this, this blood of the animals could take away no sin. Couldn't deal with anything. But it was a foreshadow of what was to come in Christ. That when his blood was shed, it was sprinkling us. We'll read that in a second. It's only his blood that purifies. And without shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And this is the verse that I just mentioned, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that we can enter into the holy of holies, friends. There's no other way. Even now, let's not take it for granted. We can only go to God in prayer freely through the blood of Jesus. It's the only way. Remember that even priests... If they weren't consecrated properly, 
If they went into the presence of the Holy of Holies, they would die in the presence of God because He is so holy and He can't look upon sin. And if He does, you die in His presence. And it's the same for us. Let me tell you, if we are not sprinkled by the blood of Christ and we stand in the presence of God, we will die. He is so holy. Having boldness then to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. There it is again. It's a work of God. He consecrated for us. Through the veil that is. Remember the curtain was torn from top to bottom. When Jesus died the temple. The curtain of the temple that stopped people going into the Holy of Holies. And what is that curtain? It's his flesh. It's his body. He says in 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what he does. It's all of him. It comes from without. It can't come from within. We have no righteousness. We're wicked. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things. But it is the blood of Christ shed for us outwardly that comes to cleanse us and sprinkles our hearts. From what? From an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36 Verses 25 through 27, the promise that God gave. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. How can you keep them? How can you do them? Unless it is him who causes you. Psalm 65, I believe it says, you have called me. Now cause me. We cannot do anything for ourselves. He has to do it for us. He takes out the heart of stone. He replaces it with a heart of flesh. He gives you a new spirit within you. He cleanses you from your filthiness. And he causes you to walk in his statutes. And he says this, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Why? Because it's his power that enables you to do so, not your own. You're going to face it, you're going to go and look at it, and you're going to try and do it yourself, impossible. But with him, all things are possible. Jesus, when he washed the feet of the disciples, he said to them, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. See, he'd already... Talk to them. <coughs> Excuse me. He'd already 
cleansed them in the sense like he did the Old Testament saints who put their trust in the Christ to come. You know, the way to salvation has always been the same. Always through Christ, always through his sacrifice on the cross, paying the price for the sin of the people, being the sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of his people. That's always been the way to God, even before he came, because they looked to a Messiah. They looked forward to the Saviour. We have the Saviour, and we look to his coming. It's been fulfilled for us. They look to the fulfilling of it, but they were saved in the same way. And so they could say to these disciples, you are clean, I have cleansed you. I have made you clean, and you are clean. Albeit, of course, he was speaking of Judas when he said, but not all of you. When he said, already bathed, I believe an answer is in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. And we, we read this, or at least we referred to this this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, having, uh, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Once again, do I need to say, he gave himself for his bride, the church, which includes you and me. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The word of God washes us, cleans us, keeps us clean. This is what Jesus did when he washed their feet. We need to have our feet keep being cleaned. We need to keep coming under the word of God and being cleansed and purified by it. Day in, day out, week in, week out. He says that he might present her to himself, a glorious church. What is it like, friends? Do you feel a privilege to be a part of the glorious church? The bride of Jesus Christ, whom he is cleansing, who he is washing with the water of his word, who he is bringing to himself. And as it says here, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Blameless before him. That we should be holy and without blemish. Once again, there is no mention of me or you. But everything that he does for us. Speaking of believers, John Gill notes this. That such may be said to be so, who, though they have sin dwelling in them, are justified from all sin by the righteousness of Christ and are clean through the word. <coughs> or sentence of justification pronounced upon them on the account of that righteousness, whose iniquities are all of them forgiven and whose hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, which cleanses from all sin and who have the grace of God wrought in their hearts, which, though as yet imperfect, it is entirely pure. There is not the least spot or stain of sin in it, and such souls as they are in love with, 
so they most earnestly desire after more purity of heart, lip, life and conversation. So although it's imperfect in us, the righteousness that is in us of Christ is absolutely pure. Because it's His. And He imputes it to us. And so the desire of our hearts and our minds and everything about us is that we are more pure in heart. That our speech is more pure. That our life is lived in more holiness and our conversation. So as this purity is uh, progressively wrought in our hearts, so our lives change in our conduct. We talked this morning, didn't we, about fruit. When, we, when this purity is wrought in our hearts, the fruit is born and we, we, our conduct changes. The sin we once loved, we now hate. For how can those who died to sin live any longer in it? We who were once sons of disobedience are now sons of the light. What fellowship has light with darkness, righteousness with lawlessness? We no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The flesh is death. The spirit is life. We are a new creation altogether in Christ Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of our inheritance to come. He's the promise. You're given the Holy Spirit as the down payment, if you like, for all that's to come. He empowers us. He enables us to go on living a progressively sanctified life. That's what the Spirit of God does as he abides in us. The pure in heart, they have a new growing desire to live a holy life. A desire to please the Lord, not to please ourselves. Our motives are no longer bent to selfish purposes. Unlike those Pharisees who were obsessed with their traditions, their ceremonies, the purification rites, the washings, the cleansings, and yet were still of a vile and a filthy heart, which is clearly seen by their plotting and their planning, the destruction and murder of Jesus. Say what you will, say what you want, Act as pure as you think you can, but it's seen in your action. These people plotted to murder Christ. They were as vile and filthy as they could. Adam Clark says this, He whose soul is not delivered from all sin, through the blood of the covenant, can have no scriptural hope of ever being with God. Let me read that again. He whose soul, friends, if your soul is not delivered from sin this evening, listen to this. He whose soul is not delivered from all sin through the blood of the covenant can have no scriptural hope of ever being with God. That should worry you. If you don't know Christ, that should worry you. There is a remarkable illustration of this passage quoted by a Mr. Wakefield from Oregon. God has no body and therefore is invisible. 
that men of contemplation can discern him with the heart and understanding. But a defiled heart cannot see God. But he must be pure who wishes to enjoy a proper view of a pure being. If we're to see God, which it says here, they shall see God, then we must be of a pure disposition. Because we cannot look upon him who is purity itself if we are not pure of heart. And that's the next statement. They shall see God. In the Old Testament, at the time of the tabernacle and then, of course, the temple, those who would enter into service to the Lord had to undergo a very lengthy process of being consecrated and cleansed. Only after this process, which had to be adhered to, absolutely, were they declared legally clean and so could enter into the presence of God. And even then, they still feared even then, the priest at times had a rope tied around his waist, had bells on the hem of his uh, cassock or whatever you want to call it, so that they could hear that he was still alive in them. And if they died, they could at least pull him out of the presence of God with the rope without entering in themselves. They had to go through seven days or so of this absolute um, vital way of cleansing themselves. But this as with many such things, were types and shadows of what was to come. 1 John 1, again, 7 verses 9, uh, verses 7 to 9, my apologies. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is all him once again. We don't have to go through this rigmarole of constantly getting in the bath for seven days. Making sure we're wearing the right clothing, folded in the right way, at the right part, on top of the right outer clothing. We've got this on, we've got that on, it's tied the right way. We don't have to go through any of that. And if we make one mistake and we go in the presence of God, that's it, we're dead. <coughs> because it's not about us cleansing ourselves. It's impossible. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. From all sin. And makes us able. To stand. Before. A thrice holy God. Only those who have been washed clean by God. Through Christ. Are pure. As already noted. Jesus declared his disciples clean. For they had been bathed by him. The pure in heart have been brought near. By the blood of Christ and they shall see God and see him without fear. We must be pure in heart if we're going to see God. To see in this context is more than just about the eyes. To see is to possess. The pure in heart shall be in possession of God. They shall have him. He will be theirs. They shall know him. They will be in possession of eternal glory. In John 3.3 3, Jesus says, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, you cannot possess the kingdom of God. It can't be yours. You shall never see it, experience it, enjoy it for yourself. You cannot partake of it unless you're born again. It just can't be yours. Once again, John Gill commentating on what seeing God means. He says this, for they shall see God in this life. Enjoying communion with him, both in private and public. In the several duties of religion, in the house and ordinances of God, where they often behold his beauty, see his power and his glory, and taste and know that he is good and gracious. And in the other world, where they shall see God in Christ, with the eyes of their understanding, and God incarnate with the eyes of their bodies, after the resurrection, which sight of Christ and God in Christ will be unspeakably glorious, desirable, delightful and satisfying. It will be free from all darkness and error and from all interruption. It will be an appropriating and transforming one and will last forever. Friends, we will see him in a way that we've never seen him. And not only a glimpse, but in all forms. And that, not just for a moment, but forever. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Know this, you have eternal life now if you believe in Christ you are eternal now may not be in its fullness but you have eternal life now and we see through a glass darkly but when we see him we shall see clearly and we shall be like him blessed then are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. Father, we thank you for these principles, and Lord, we know as we look at everyone that we cannot be any of this in our own nature. Lord, we fall short of the glory and the standard of God. We cannot be poor in spirit. We cannot be those who mourn for sin. We cannot be those who are meek and humble. We cannot be those who truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. We don't know how to be merciful. And Lord, it is impossible for us to be pure in heart unless you so work upon us. And Lord God, for all those who trust upon Christ this, this evening, I thank you, Lord God, that even though it is yet imperfect, there is the pureness of righteousness within them. Your righteousness and whatever, how much righteousness within us that we have, given and imputed by you, is absolutely pure. <coughs> and when we see you, O oh God, we shall be like Jesus. 
and we shall be of purity that we have never experienced in this life. But I ask, Lord God, that you would enable us then to live and desire to have a drive, a godly, holy drive for purity, for holiness, to live before you, to strive after holiness without which no one can see God. Help us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer. Help us to live accordingly. And Lord, we know as we've read, as we've studied, as we've seen that you are the one that makes us pure in heart through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's only through that blood by which we can be cleansed. And I ask you, Lord God, tonight, if there are any amongst us who does not know the cleansing power from sin of your blood, Lord Jesus, Lord, that you may pierce them through by your word, that you may bring them to their knees in repentance, to turn away from the life they've lived of sin, to put their trust in you for their salvation, and Lord, that they may enjoy the knowledge of the saving grace and power of the blood of Jesus. Lord, will you do it? Will you do it not for me, not for even us as a church, but will you do it for your glory? Will you cause your name to be honoured? Lord, your name is power. Your gospel is power. And I pray, Lord God, that it bears fruit. Think of those Moravians who went on the ship and they said, may the reward of your suffering be given to the Lamb. May the Lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. Oh Lord God, may it be unto your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.